be up on the screen. You're free, feel free to listen or follow along in your uh, Bible. And it says, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Uh, short pause. Why isn't he getting off the cross? Because he's still saving others on the cross. The soldiers also mocked, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you. Welcome. Uh, I add my welcome to Alan's uh, to Union Chapel. This morning we're going to be reading just one verse of scripture from Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to that great chapter of prophecy about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at this uh, for a few weeks. And today we're concluding our little study uh, in the last stanza of this great prophecy, what I call the deep end of Isaiah 53, the part that uh, is perhaps got more in it that confuses us, naturally speaking, than the rest of it. But it's an important part of this great prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of Judah uh, about 740 BC in the land of Israel, as we would say today. And he was predicting not only things that were going to happen shortly after his time, but also uh, which would happen far into the future when the Lord Jesus came and died. And Isaiah 53 verse 12 says this, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
I expect, like me, you've uh, spent a lot of time in, the, in your past watching old films, especially in the olden days when we didn't have Netflix to choose something fresh to watch. And uh, in the olden days, every year at Christmas, it seemed the great escape would come up, and probably at Easter as well. And it is a true story of uh, how 75 men broke out from a German prisoner of war camp in what is now Poland in 1944. And the leader, the man who was the mastermind of this great escape, was a gentleman by the name of squadron leader Roger Bushell. And he was the man who came up with the plan and the design of the tunnel to uh, get the men out from underneath the fence and escape uh, to safety. And after the war, it was revealed when they went through the war office papers that he had been recommended posthumously a George Cross medal. But sadly, he was denied. They turned it down. And so they put in an offer, uh, a request again. They said, look, this man, he, he did an amazing thing getting the, uh, the tunnel and those 75 prisoners to escape. Sadly, only three actually made it, which is part of the tragedy of the story. But he did an amazing thing helping them escape. And what most people don't know is that before that, in the, while he was in prison, by undisclosed means that they still haven't disclosed, he was passing very important secret information back home uh, through a channel that he had out of, the, uh, out of the prison. And the government looked at it again in 1949 and said, no, we're still not giving him a medal. And as far as I know, to this day, he's never been recognised beyond the film. Now, I don't know how that touches you, but I, I look at that and I think, how can that be right? You know? <laughs> a man who was so brave and did such amazing things, how can he not be honoured by those he helped? Well, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, his saving work on the cross will not be left without honour. And this is what the last stanza of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53 uh, is about. From verse 10 down to verse 12, it's, it's basically talking about the reward that will come to him. We've had the victory of the cross and the great turnaround, and really what I'm trying to say in every one of these is the same thing, that Christ will be honoured and rewarded for his saving work on the cross, which we're remembering today on Good Friday. And verse 12 definitely sums this up. It says, therefore, and it's God the Father speaking, therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will be given a, 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 a reward like a, a king coming back from battle, a victor's reward. And he will divide the spoils with the strong or with the many. He will share that with those he's going to save. And this is what we uh, talked about in our last study in Isaiah chapter 53. In part, we talked about how Christ would be given a kingdom. He will be given a throne. He will be given a new name. He will be given a people and he will be honoured in glory. And, and the book of Revelation is full of this. You remember the great scene around the throne in the opening chapters of Revelation. It says, salvation and glory and honour and wealth and power and riches belong to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it belongs to him because he was slain for sinners. This is his reward. He's going to be rewarded for his saving work 
on the cross. And Isaiah's last comments is to remind us the story for why he gets the glory. And in the last phrases, we see a breakdown of the work, of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to look at this this morning, because this is obviously what we're remembering today, this Good Friday. And he will be remembered for each one of these things. He'll be remembered, let's start off, first of all, for Gethsemane. For Gethsemane. Gethsemane, uh, I believe, is spoken of in this middle line where it says, because he poured out his life unto death. The hymn writer said, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. And Gethsemane was the garden where the Lord Jesus went with his disciples to pray before he was arrested and taken to Pontius Pilate's judgment hall to be uh, led away to execution. And it was here that he began to pour out his life, pour out his soul, as it literally is in the Hebrew. The word life is the Hebrew word nefesh. It means his soul. And we've talked about this earlier on, how his, his soul suffered in the, in the saving work of the cross. Uh, we saw that back in verse 10 and verse 11, after the suffering of his soul. Well, that all began in Calvary, when Christ, sorry, in Gethsemane, when the Lord Jesus went in prayer before God the Father, before going to the cross. Warren Wiersbe has said this in one of his commentaries. He said, our Lord's struggle in the garden can be understood only in light of what would happen to him on the cross. He would be made sin for us and bear the curse of the law. It was not the physical suffering that almost overwhelmed him with anguish and sorrow, but the contemplation of being forsaken by his Father. This was the cup. That he would drink. And like in the Old Testament, when Jacob uh, was going to meet his brother Ishmael, and they uh, met, do you remember? But the night before he met, Jacob sent his family across and he went down into the valley, down into a place called Jabbok, and he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And there was a private battle before there was a public battle. So, in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ went to Gethsemane and had this private battle, as it were, where he poured out his soul and was willing to take on the saving work of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what Gethsemane means? The word Gethsemane literally means olive press. And it's, it's uh, on the hill opposite, the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. And it's where they used to grow the uh, olives and get the first press of the olives in the olive press. They would press the olives three times, actually. The first time would be for the oil, for the temple lamps. Then after that it would be for the cooking oil. And thirdly, the third press would be for the oil for the lamps. But they would press and they would crush and they would crush those olives so that they could have all the oil out of it. Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord went into such pressure, such crushing pressure uh, before going to the cross. And he poured out his soul unto death. This is really where his suffering began. Matthew chapter 26 and uh, verse 36 to 49 tells us 
Then Jesus went to, with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And here we see the Lord Jesus pouring out his soul unto death. He's literally, I, I really, no sane person would want to go to the cross. And Jesus as a man didn't want to have to go to the cross, but he was willing to do it. Uh, because he knew it was the way of salvation and he was willing to do it. But he, he, he was in that agony in the garden. The hymn writer put it like this. He said, none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through before he found the sheep that was lost. We often forget Gethsemane, don't we? But it's where the Lord's suffering began. And it's also where his sanctifying began. You know, in John 17, we have the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, as it's often called. And in verse 19, the Lord Jesus said this. He said, for them, meaning for my disciples, those I'm saving, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, we tend to think of sanctification just as Christians being made more sinless and trying to conquer their sins. But the word sanctification means far more than that in Scripture. And it was used of the priest, the high priest, who was set apart for going into the temple on the Day of Atonement and making an offering for the nation to be forgiven in the temple. And the high priest couldn't just go in. He had to have a, a ritual bath, a mikvah. He had to be separated from people for over 24 hours. He had to uh, go through a test of, uh, of cleanliness and so on. And he was being prepared, ready for that hour. And this is where the Lord Jesus did the same thing. He said, I'm doing this. I'm sanctifying myself for them to go to the cross began in Gethsemane. It's where he poured out his soul unto death. It's where his submission began too. Hebrews uh, chapter 5 gives us an ever valuable insight into Gethsemane. And in verse 7, the writer to the Hebrews says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent Submission. Isn't that interesting? The Lord Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and the plan of salvation that the covenant, uh, that the, uh, the Trinity, the Godhead, had uh, conceived for the plan of salvation for sinners to be saved. And so the Lord Jesus for Gethsemane will be rewarded. Who could deny that he is worthy of such reward when we consider the moments his suffering began before even getting to the cross. And then secondly we see, sorry that reference didn't come up, secondly we see his reward will be for Gabbatha. And this is what I believe is talked about in the next phrase. 
in verse 12. And it says, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now you say, John, what is Gabatha on earth? What on earth is Gabatha? Well, Gabatha was the name of the place where Pontius Pilate said these men are going to be executed. And in John chapter 19 and verse 12, we read this. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation or Passover week, about the sixth hour. And it was here that Pontius Pilate numbered the Lord Jesus Christ with the other two criminals to go to be executed. Now this was something that had to be fulfilled in scripture. The Lord Jesus himself said this in the upper room before going to the cross. In Luke 22 and verse 37 he said in the upper room, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. And Mark fifteen twenty eight associates that with Christ and the two criminals who went out to be executed. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ was numbered with them to be set apart to be executed. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to think about the embarrassment that could have led to. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the sinless, spotless Son of God. He had no sin, he had no shame, and yet he was numbered with those who did. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on this passage says this, What would any woman with a delicate purity of mind think if she were numbered with the harlots? What would any honest man think among us think if he were numbered with thieves? But that would be nothing compared with the Holy Lord Jesus being numbered with the transgressors. And yet to this he submitted for our sakes. It's, it's quite humbling, isn't it? You know, we, we, we tend not to want to be numbered with the wrong group. Uh, you know, I'm going to use an illustration to get from A to B here, so bear with me. But you know, sometimes uh, I, I, I say to people, why didn't you go to the Monday meeting? You know, I remember I used to visit this lady uh, and she was uh, on her own and she was quite elderly. And I said to her, look, you say you're lonely. Why don't you go to the Monday meeting? And she said, oh, they're all old. And I said, no offence, but you're 82. <laughs> now, she didn't want to go because she didn't want to be numbered with the elderly. Now, she was older than everyone else in the room at the time. <laughs> but, you know, we're like that, aren't we? Teenagers, you know, teenagers don't want to be seen walking down the road with their parents. Isn't that true? You know, my sister, she came home from school dropping the girls off uh, at school when they were younger. And she said, the girls really got me today. They said, mum, whatever you do, don't get out the car. <laughs> 
don't want to be seen with it. You know, we don't want to be associated with the wrong group. Now think about that. How would you feel if your name was printed by mistake in the newspaper with a list of known paedophiles? How would you feel? You'd be grieved, you'd be horrified, you'd want to fight for your justice, wouldn't you? And yet that's nothing compared to the Lord Jesus being numbered with sinners. John White, a famous Christian author, wrote a book called The Fight. And uh, he also wrote another book uh, called Leadership, uh, Excellence in Leadership. He was a medical student uh, before working in Christian work. And he said this, as a medical student, I once missed a practical class on venereal disease. Because of this, I had to go to the venereal disease clinic alone one night at a time when students did not usually attend. As I entered the building, a male nurse I did not know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see a doctor, please, I said. That's what everybody wants. Stand in line, he replied. But you don't understand. I'm a medical student, I protested. Makes no difference. You got it the same way everybody else did. Stand in line, the male nurse repeated. In the end, I managed to explain to him why I was there, but I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in the line with men who had VD. Think of the embarrassment that could have led to for the Lord Jesus, being numbered with transgressors. It happened all through his life. They called him a wine-bibber and a glutton. They even said he did his miracles by the power of the devil. He was an occultist, did it by Beelzebub. And they did it right at the end, putting him with those who were evil and criminals. But think even more about the execution that this would have led to. You know, there's a line in the Psalms that we Christians love to quote when we're praising God for his goodness to us. And we often say this, Lord, the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. It comes from Psalm 16. We love to talk about it and we love to thank God for his goodness to us. We live in a country of peace. We're not out in Ukraine or Syria. We live in a place of peace. We have a nice house. We have, we have our health and the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. Can I be honest with you? That's probably not what David had in mind when David wrote that psalm. That phrase is better understood when we understand an act that used to happen with prisoners of war, which David himself was familiar with according to 2 Samuel chapter 8. And what it was was this. When you captured prisoners of war, normally you executed them all because you wanted to deplete the enemy's army. Now David was more merciful than the people of his day, but he still had to deplete the army so that they wouldn't be a threat to him. And in 2 Samuel 8, we read that what David did with the Moabites was this. He got a length of rope and he made all the Moabites lie down on the ground. And he measured off one, two, two lots of rope, these men all executed. The third lot of rope, these men are allowed to go home. Do you see? And David's saying... The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I've been spared. I was due judgment. But I've been spared. The lines have fallen to me. I should have been one executed. But God spared me. 
Now, in reverse, the Lord Jesus was numbered with the transgressors and his line was to go to the cross. Think of the suffering that that meant he was going to go to and what he was going to bear as a result for us. What a terrifying experience that must have been to hear the command to go and be executed. No wonder he is worthy of a reward. He was numbered with the transgressors so we could be numbered with the righteous, so we could be saved and forgiven. And you know what? You and I need to realise this and we need to come humbly to our great God and ask for his forgiveness and his saving work. The Lord offers us a salvation through his death in our place so that we can have his standing in, in heaven instead. We need to come humbly and ask for it. One of the great scientists of history... Oh, I haven't put it on. Okay, I'll, I'll come back to that. Anyway, I'll use the illustration another time. But let's move on. Thirdly, for Golgotha. This is the third reason why Christ is worthy of a reward, according to uh, Isaiah 53. The, last, the next phrase in this verse 12 is this. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for, or yet, he bore the sin of many. And this is where we come to the actual cross and the saving of the sinners on the cross where he bore the sin of many at the hill called Golgotha. Alan read for us from Luke's Gospel a moment ago, and Luke's Gospel in the version Alan said, uh, called it the place, uh, not the place of the skull, called it Calvary, which is one name of the place where Jesus died. But it's also known as Golgotha. John 19 verse 17 said, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And it was at Golgotha that the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross and received the judgment in our place. He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And this is what we're talking about in this part of the verse, his bearing of the sins. Like we mentioned earlier on, the scapegoat would carry away the sins uh, of Israel on the day of atonement ritual. And Christ bore our sins on the cross. Now I'm going to tell you something that hopefully you'll never forget. The word bore is the word NASA. Now you know what NASA does? They make space rockets, right? Go up to space. This will help you remember it. The word NASA here means to lift it off, to bear it up, to take it up and carry it away. Up and away. And he bore the sin of many on the cross when he died for us. Now, we need to consider the sheer weight of those sins. He bore the sins of many. It'd be enough if he bore the sins of one man. But he bore the sins of many. And John Calvin says the word many is often used as all. So, all limited atonement out the window. <laughs> but he says he bore the sin of many. 
And on the cross, the compounded weight of the sin of humanity from Adam through to the last baby that will ever be born on planet Earth was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a legend, uh, and I I believe it's based on truth, that in Exeter University, there is a library, a big library that is built on the side of a hill. And I heard this from one of the students who's in the architect's uh, faculty there. And they said the story that is told is that this, this, this library was actually designed and had to be built by the students themselves. And they had to do all the calculations for building this huge library. And, uh, of course, it was a great project. Building on the side of a hill isn't easy. And they did all their calculations and they built this library. There was a great opening and it was a wonderful uh, model of success of the teaching and the, and the work of the students. But it wasn't long before that library began to slide down the hill and come away from the university. Because you see, they had made a miscalculation. They hadn't taken into account the weight of all the books. Now you pick up one book, it's not that heavy. Two books maybe. But all the books in a university library are pulling down. And this is what is uh, in my mind when I see Christ bearing the sins of many. All that weight of sin on him as he went to the cross. You know, this is why you cannot ever convince me the Lord Jesus wasn't God as well as man. There's no way a mere human could bear that. He had to be the God-man to bear our sins on the cross. The weight of those sins... But think of the wrath of those sins too. My favourite hymn says, Great is the gospel of our glorious God, where mercy met the anger of God's rod. And at Calvary, the Lord Jesus bore the weight and the wrath of those sins. The judgment that God rightfully wants to uh, uh, punish sin for, it was put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And bearing shame and mocking rude, in my place he stood condemned and sealed my pardon with his blood. He poured the burden and the wrath of it at Calvary. This is why he is worthy of great reward for what he has done. And sinners today, whoever they are, can be saved because the substitute has died in our place. And you can be forgiven your sins. You need forgiveness for the biggest sins. You need forgiveness for the smallest sins too. And every one of them, Jesus bore, and you can be forgiven and washed clean of if you turn to him. Copernicus was a famous uh, astrophysicist, as we would say today. But he was a scientist. He was the man who worked out a lot of stuff about the movement of the heavenly bodies. And don't ever let anyone tell you scientists deny the existence of God because many scientists in history have been great Christians. And Copernicus was a firm believer in God and he loved the Lord. And do you know what it says on his gravestone? This is what it says on his gravestone. I do not seek a kindness equal to that given to Paul, nor do I ask the grace granted to Peter, but that forgiveness which thou didst grant to the robber That, earnestly, I crave. (laughs) And you know what? That's where we would be wise to seek God as well. 
The Lord Jesus has borne our sins. We can have his forgiveness if we ask him for it. But we have to go like the thief, humbly to the Saviour, to ask, forgive me my sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The final place for which Christ will be remembered is for glory. And this is the last line of Isaiah 53, and it says, and made... Or, perhaps it should be translated as uh, uh, one commentator says, and makes intercession for the transgressors. The passage ends with talking about the Lord Jesus' priestly ministry as a result of this. And to make intercession is to be a priest. It means to pray for someone and to intercede for someone. And this is something the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. You remember the first act, the first prayer of the seven lines, seven words of the cross was this, Father, forgive them their sin. They don't know what they're doing. And even while they were cruelly nailing him to the cross, he interceded for them and prayed for their forgiveness. Isn't that mercy? Isn't that great uh, mercy? But you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ, even after dying, he has not finished his work of intercession, intercession for transgressors. Because the Bible tells us that he continues in this ministry today. And in this we see the hope of resurrection as well as his priestly ministry. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And the Lord Jesus who prayed for sinners on the cross prays for those who've trusted in him to this day in heaven. You know, the great picture of this in the Old Testament is the high priest who would go into the temple or into the tabernacle. And the high priest had a special garments that he had to wear. These are called his glorious or golden robes. And you'll notice he had a, a square on his front which was made of precious stones, uh, emeralds and sapphires and so on. And this was... Uh, the breastplate of the high priest. And what you can't see in the picture is each one of those stones has engraved on it the names of the children of Israel. Has the 12 tribes on each of those 12 stones. And also you'll see on his shoulders he has some chains, but at the top he has another two stones. And those two stones are onk stones and they have six tribes written on one side and six tribes written on the other. And what that means is this, every time the high priest went into the temple to offer the blood that had been offered for the sacrifice, he was representing the people and he was interceding for them, praying for them. And he was represented before God. You know, that's what our high priest is doing for us today. Although the Lord Jesus' saving work finished on the cross, his keeping work continues in heaven. And I'm so glad of that. Because you know what, it may shock you to know this. At the moment, the devil isn't like in the cartoon character pictures where you see him in a lake of fire with a little pitchfork. The devil isn't in hell. The devil is in heaven. Did you know that? He actually has access to heaven. You read the book of Job. 
In the book of Job, we read, Satan came into the presence of God and accused Job before God. Read the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, you'll read about the high priest standing there in his, in his robes, in, in this vision that Zechariah saw, and the accuser, Satan, came to accuse him. But the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, interceded, stopped the accusation. And today the accuser of the brethren is in heaven, but our great high priest intercedes for us. Our advocate in heaven and holds up our name and says, no, this one will not be lost. I paid for his sin. His name is engraved on my hands. He's one of mine. I will keep him. My sheep will never be plucked from my hands. And he, he intercedes for them in heaven. And how we're thankful for that. Do you know you've been prayed for today? Not only on earth, but also in heaven. By the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 uh, tells us Christ intercedes for us. And therefore who shall bring a charge against his elect. So what a wonderful saviour we have. How worthy of rewards he is. How worthy he is to be honoured. And you know what? Sometimes we don't understand the reward system, do we? You know, I, I watch the Queen's Awards and see these people getting rewards. I think, who are they getting a medal for? You know, services done in show business or something. You know, you think, you know, that doesn't really deserve a medal. You look at the rewards the Lord Jesus gets. He is worthy of them. You see them all here, the reasons why. And we can add to him, uh, add, add to his praises today. Uh, our thanksgiving for what he has done for us in his saving work when he came to die for us. Let's give him praise even this Good Friday. Thank you.